following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. Last week, we, we talked about a thing called practical atheism from Psalm 14. And so um, before I get into that, that we, we said that that was the danger, that we could live like there wasn't a God while we said we believe there is a God. You all remember that? And in it, there was also a statement at the end that it said, there is no one that's righteous, there's no one that seeks the Lord. And, and we asked the question, well, what hope do we have if it's true that there is no one righteous and there's no one that seeks the Lord? And the conclusion that we said was we have hope because of Christ, because of what he's done, not because of how good we are, but because of what Christ has done. We said that gives us hope. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at a truth that I think can fuel us truly to victory in life, not just a one-day thing, but a process of our life that from where we came to faith in Christ to where we end up will be sort of that long, slow trajectory, sort of like everybody hopes the stock market looks like at the end of their life, right? They want it to, they don't care about the ups and downs on a monthly basis. What they do care about is that from when they put their money in, until when that money comes out, that it actually had increased over time. Well, over the last couple of weeks, we've had a lot of rain, and I've got four kids, and my youngest two have reminded me of something, that uh, thunder and lightning are frightening. I mean, I, honestly, we were actually talking about, my son had a soccer tryout last night at Tully Stadium, and there was thunder and lightning, and so we had to sit for 30 minutes while they wait for that to be gone. But But there... There were my two girls two nights in a row at the foot of our bed. So we have a sort of a 10 by 10 master bedroom, and uh, it's tiny. We subdivided our master bedroom when we had our fourth kid because we realized two bedrooms, three daughters, one son. We better have an extra room to put the boy so that we can do this thing right. And so that's what we have. And I tried to convince my girls there had never been lightning that had gone through a closed bedroom window in Spring Branch and struck a five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old girl and killed them. And that they were far more in danger of a middle-aged guy at three in the morning going to the water closet, forgetting that they're there, trampling them, than they would ever be of lightning coming through. Do you all know what I mean? So all that, and I'm not making fun of them, but I was like, that's absolutely right. And I told them, yeah, that's your greater danger. And yet for them, the whole, that whole process reminded me that sometimes we believe things that are not true. And if we can, hey, can we get the uh, presentation on just, if that's cool. That, that there are sometimes truths and we feel one way, but the truth is something totally different. The truth is they're completely and utterly safe. The reality of their feelings, though, is that they're not safe at all, right? So they come into the bedroom, they sit at the foot of the bed, or they lay down, actually, in this case, right beside the bed, and we could trample them at any point. And I want us, we're going to look at Romans 6 today, because I believe in Romans 6, Paul is trying to communicate in a culture that had thousands of gods, we talked about that last week, that the culture that the Bible the early church was launched in was very polytheistic. Lots, thousands of gods and goddesses. 
And in this culture, they didn't believe in absolute truth. They believed in relative truth. And Paul is trying to argue for one God, one truth, one hope, one salvation. And in the words of Francis Schaeffer, it's true truth. Not comprehensive truth, but true truth. Truth that you can base your whole life on. And right here in Romans 6 is where it is. Last week, this was our big takeaway. The fool says in his heart, God doesn't exist, right? And that that's a danger for all of us. This week, I want us to get a little background and jumping in here at Romans 5. It says the law came along to multiply sin. The law came to multiply it, right? We wouldn't know about sin without the law is what Paul says. And where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So the logical conclusion is God gets glory when he shows his grace This is a great relationship. I love to sin and he loves to give grace. So the more I sin, the more grace he gives, the better he looks, right? I mean, do you you follow that logic? And that's what was going on at the church. People heard Paul say, you're saved by what Jesus did on the cross. Faith alone. How many of y'all have heard that? In Christ alone, faith alone, that's it. His grace. Nothing that you do, right? Nothing that you do. I'm not teaching anything other than that. They heard that and they began to say, well, then why not sin more and more and more? And last week we would call that what? Practical atheism, right? Practical atheism. I can say I believe in God. I can live any way I want to live. Well, Paul addresses that. I was in college when a guy challenged me. I was struggling with something that we have all struggled with, and that's that's lust. Specifically for me, it was like masturbation and stuff like that. I struggled with it. And I told a guy, I said, I'm so sick of struggling with all this. He said, you just need to memorize a chapter of the Bible. Well, guess what he took me to? Romans 6. Romans 6. So I want us to look at Romans 6. We're going to read through it. It's printed there in the listening guides. If uh, you really, the white listening guide is what we're going to start with. The yellow listening guide is where we're going to land because I've got a homework assignment for you for the summer. So the white is what you'll need right now. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. I want to stop right there. Paul had a chance here to say salvation by grace alone really isn't true. If you sin like crazy, you're going straight to hell and that grace isn't enough. He could have said that, but he doesn't. He actually doesn't. He says that grace is going to do something in our life that the law couldn't do. Does this make sense? He could have said, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. Grace is insufficient for salvation. Therefore, you need to quit sinning or you're going straight to hell and puts the fear of God in everybody, right? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't put the fear of God in everybody. 
He points to the idea of grace as a transforming force that can change a man. And we're going to see it's, it's actually changing a man from the inside out, which is really the mindset of victory that we need if we're going to journey with Christ for a lifetime. We need the right mindset to do that. So here in these five verses, <clears throat> we're buried with him. We were crucified with him. We'll be resurrected with him. He, he's in our place on the cross, and we get all the benefit of that, right? That's sort of first five verses. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. So what were we once? Slaves to sin. Theological fact. How many of y'all would debate that fact from your own past? I wouldn't. I mean, I, I have a PhD in lots of areas of brokenness and sin. I can, you know, we can all tell stories and we can all look back and say, I regret this, I regret this, I regret this. Even when I've done good, it's been peppered in with seasons of me doing exactly what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. And a lot of it, hey, I didn't murder anyone. I didn't rape anyone. I didn't get addicted to crystal meth or whatever. It's like I could feel pretty good about all the things I've done, even though I look back at it and I cringe if I lay it out and I go into a penitentiary and I sit there and compare, I could sort of try to make myself feel better. But in the end, I am no better. Because I have been a slave to sin. That's who I was before Jesus came. Verse 7, since a person who's died is freed from sin's claim. So why did Jesus have to die? Well, paid for our price of sin. And the price of sin was what? Death. So he dies because that was the penalty for sin was death. Now, if we died with Christ, now I don't feel like I died with Christ, do y'all? I just want you to hear his argument real quickly and then we're going to jump into one verse. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. He conquered death. Death no longer rules over him. For in light of the fact that he died, he died to sin once for all. But in the light of the fact that he lives, he lives to God. And so this is the verse we're going to camp on is verse 11. Paul loves to give commands. Paul loves to give advice. There is not a single command in the book of Romans in the first five chapters. Think about this. Most of his letters aren't five chapters long. There's not a command given in the first five chapters. There's not a command given in the first half of chapter six. But in the middle of chapter six, we get the very first command from Paul in the entire book of Romans. I mean, do y'all I mean, understand how significant that is? That he could have commanded us to do a lot of stuff. And this is the very first thing he commands us to do. And it says this. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Not quit sinning, but consider yourself. It's a thought. And we're going to talk about how little things can actually be big things. How a thought can truly change the world. But it's a thought that he calls us to. 
It's a meditation. It's a mindset he calls us to. And it's to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because of that, verse 12, therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires and don't offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, so what are we now? We're alive from the dead. Offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness, dangerous, reckless, powerful, purposeful weapons of righteousness. Why? Because we'll see later in Romans, there is a battle going on that's not against flesh and blood. That the only thing for evil to prosper is for what? Good men to do nothing. Edmund Burke, you know, that we would sit back and not be a weapon for the God, for the Lord. Think about the book of Psalms and Proverbs that children are an inheritance from the Lord. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. What's in a quiver? An arrow. What's an arrow? It's a weapon. God's intent for you and for me is that we would be weapons for righteousness, but not against flesh and blood. But against the spiritual battle that's going on around us since the dawn of time. For sin will not rule over you. And I want you to hear that because I was asked in 2001, I was teaching a Bible study class at this church. The director of the class and I were in accountability together. And he asked me the question, do you think you'll always look at pornography and struggle with struggle with masturbation and all of that? And I was married. My wife had found out. It had been a bad year of marriage and we were working our way to earning trust and walking in freedom. And I said to him back then, yes. And here's the, here is my truth. Once an addict who can finish the sentence. Always an addict. Now, I didn't find that in the Bible, by the way. I got that in a recovery group. Once an addict, always an addict. Once a luster, always a luster. Once a pornographer, always a pornographer. Once a rageaholic, always a rageaholic. What we're going to look at today is that there's probably nothing further from the truth than that. And so about 10 years ago, I called him up and I said, Andy, do you remember that conversation we had way, way back? He said, yes. And I said, I want to change my answer. I don't believe I always will have to do that. In fact, I believe I can walk with a new mind and a new heart. And although I can still be tempted, I am not that man. That man is dead and I am alive to God. And so I want to share with you all what that unpacking can be like. And I love it. For sin will not rule over you. Whatever you feel guilty and shamed about in life, and it could be sexual, it could be financial, it could be just anger and frustration and rage and you're impatient and you have bad relationships with other people. Whatever it is, it will not rule over you if and only if you will take verse 11, the command that Paul gives and apply it into your life so that you would become a weapon of righteousness. Why does Paul say it won't rule over you? Because you're not under the law anymore. You're under what? Grace. 
And I'll just read this out because time-wise, I want us to have more time on verse 11. What then? Should we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Again, Paul says, absolutely not. It's a, like a, the most negative statement he could say. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you're slaves to the one you obey, either of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching you were transferred to. And having been liberated from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. He goes on, for just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to moral impurity and a greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in this fancy theological word, sanctification. And we love the last verse. I'm going to jump to the very last verse here. But now since you've been liberated from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit which results in sanctification and the end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 11 though, I want to hit. I want us to think about what does it mean to be dead to sin? What does it mean to be dead to sin? If he says this is what we should consider... That you are dead to sin because of being in Christ. I want us to look at three things it means. It means number one, we are free from sin's control. In other words, we are authoritatively free. We are under a different allegiance. A different reign and rulership. Paul would say that I'm not just a citizen of Rome, but I'm a citizen of what? Heaven. We all have dual citizenship here. Some of us maybe have triple citizenship, but I'm dual American. Oh, and I walk in the kingdom of God. I am a slave to the most high king who's been now adopted as a child, which is awesome. For the first time in my existence, I am free to follow Jesus. Prior to that, I was a slave to sin and death. I had no free will. I had no choice. Sin was all I could do, even on my best days. So if I didn't have Christ in my life and Andy Jackson asks me, Eric, do you think you'll always be this way? My answer should have been, oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'm a slave to this stuff. I'm bound to it. It's who I am. But as a man of God, a man of faith, a person who is walking with the resurrected Christ. Oh, no, no. I'm I am free. I'm dead to sin. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I'm so free from sin's control. Number two, I'm free from the world's pressures. In other words, I don't have to follow the standards, the morals, the game that the world has. I do not have to go that way if I do not want to go that way. That I am not living for the approval of other people anymore. I live from the approval of God. And if we don't think that's real, I just want you to think about deflate gate for a moment. Think, I'm, I'm just telling you this. Think about it. Tom Brady. Now, I'm a straight shooter guy. I'm, I'm heterosexual, but he's like a good looking guy. He's married to an unbelievably good looking wife. They have a boatload of money. And I don't know if boatload means how many hundreds of millions of dollars they have, but they got it, right? He is a Hall of Fame caliber quarterback, statistically speaking. He has won the highest pinnacle and highest awards possible in his field 
So it would be like if you're a scientist, any petroleum engineers, anybody, you know, it would be like you winning like the Nobel Prize for whatever, and you win it, or whatever the highest prize. He's won all that. And yet he's so fearful, because I've, I've racked my brain on why he did what he did. Because he says, well, it didn't matter, we would have won anyway. I'm like, well, if it didn't matter and you would have won anyway and you were so confident about that, then why would you do it? I don't know. Why would you give $36,000 of memorabilia to a guy to do that and then say you didn't? It's because for him, his life's value is based on the approval of the fans, the approval of culture, all of it. There's more pressure on him than I'll ever understand. There is. But if you build your life based off of the approval of the world around you and your performance, you will shortcut any way you can to keep your performance at the highest level possible. You agree with that? I mean, if we're living for approval instead of from approval, look out. We're going to do some really stupid stuff on our taxes, on job reviews, politics, all of it, sexually, you name it, we will skirt around everything so that we look better and feel better about ourselves. And that, my friends, I think is not the way that Christ also wanted us to live. He wants us free from the world's pressures. And number three, not only free from sin's control, free from the world's pressures, but free from the fear of death. And let's be honest, most of us maybe don't have the fear of our own death. But if you're a small business owner, you may have fear of death of your job, of your business, of your baby. If, if you're married, it may be fear of death of a spouse. It could be fear of death of a dream if you're single. When I went through a broken engagement, I mean, the thing that ripped me apart was not that I wouldn't spend my life with Connie. It was the possibility that I will spend my life alone and I have a dream to be a husband and I have a dream to be a father. And so I grieved the loss of the dream more than the loss of the girl. Does that make sense? And so in here, I don't know what your, what death is, that maybe what part of death you might fear, but in Christ, we are not to walk in fear of death. Look at Hebrews chapter two, verse 14 and 15. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these. He shared in our flesh and blood so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death. That is the devil. And then hear this verse 15. And free those who were held in slavery all their lives by fear of death. Those three things to be dead to sin. Those three things we just wrote down. Is that good news? It's great news, right? But this is what I love about Paul is Paul is like, it's like a late night infomercial. This is the moment in the infomercial that we get this amazing thing. The price has been revealed. The product has been offered. But now we get a little added bonus. But wait, there's more. There's more than just being dead to sin. If Jesus just made us dead to sin, that would be enough. Amen? That'd be great. But more than just being dead to sin is he now says, you once were dead in sin and now you're dead to sin. You were once dead to God, but now 
you are alive to God. And so what does that look like and what does that mean? And first, it means that we have a transformed or a new life. In other words, in Christ, we are accepted. At our church, we hear baptism testimonies. Every week, there are testimonies of baptisms, of lives being changed. I stand here today as someone whose life has been changed. Many of you, your life has been changed. If you're like, Eric, I have no clue if my life has been changed or not. The blessing that Jesus would have for you today is that today you could actually say, I'm sick of being alive to sin and dead to God. I, I want new life in him and I, I would have no greater pleasure uh jeff would have no great most several men around him just just say hey i really do want to be alive to god with a testimony that's his glory and so don't i would say please don't leave her there's no shame there's no embarrassment at all in that the shame the sad part of it would be to hear and to walk out and not ever respond and not ever deal with this and so the testimony is this the testimony is that god will transform life not part of it all of it all of your life so think about the areas you maybe have in life whether it's relationships or finances or your job think about moral stuff think about Things you, I wish I wasn't that way. I wish I could live life differently. Whatever that is, in him, we're new. In him, we're new. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. Old things have passed away and look, new things have come. The key to all of this is that if you have Christ, you have new life. If you don't have Christ, you don't have new life. You cannot have new life apart from Christ. But not only that, but also in Christ, being alive to God means we also have a new purpose, a transformed purpose that we're not only accepted by God now, but now we're significant. And what our life is about is about significant things. That doesn't mean that that working for a company is insignificant, but it means you have something even greater than that that you bring with you wherever you go, and that is the purposes of God. So we can think of it this way. Christ's purpose equals our purpose. It's become our purpose. Whether we want it or not, his call is to you and to me, not just Pastor Greg, not just Billy Graham, not just John Boland, not just Eric Reed. Not just Jeff Geisler or Corey. For all of us, we all have the same purpose. Listen to Christ's words. He says this twice in John. John 17, 18, he says, As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I mean, I hear people say, well, you know, I'm just an accountant. Uh, You know, I'm just an accountant. I'll hear people say, yeah, I do, I do sales, sort, you know, I just do sales, I'm a sales guy, no. I'm an IT guy, yeah. And let me just, 
okay, I was a school teacher. I've been a coach. I've been an exercise physiologist. I ran a boys' home for troubled teens. I started a nonprofit. I'm a vocational mutt. I, and I'll mean this. <clears throat> I came on staff here almost 10 years ago. I do not feel as if I am serving God with a different purpose than I did 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 15 years ago. My purpose hasn't changed. My occupation has changed, but God's purpose in my life has not changed. And so I want you to think about purpose for a minute. I want you to think about this, that purpose isn't about network. Purpose isn't about status. Purpose isn't about title. What are you doing with the purposes of God? What are you doing with it? Where are you burdened? Where do you look out and you see something in society and it frustrates you? And I don't mean just traffic on I-10, okay? But I mean, do you see something and that you see it and there's something inside of you that wells up and you're like, that is not right. It shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way. What battles do you see that need to be fought What frustrates you? What brings you joy? What gifts do you have that are needed? If you're the guy that walks into a church or you're the guy that walks into the office and you look around, you're like, hey, why are they doing it this way? Why isn't it this way? Maybe it's because God's brought you there because you have some vision and you can contribute and you can make things different. My dad for years would be frustrated to say, Eric, I I don't know why the church doesn't serve the widows, you know. There's a lot of that in the Bible. I wish we could serve the widows. I was like, Dad, why don't you go to the pastor and just share that with him? Oh, no, he's busy. Eric, he's busy. He's got sermons and hospitals and funerals. And I I just wish somebody would just think of that and do that. I mean, I heard that for years. Well, I told my dad, and now he's not really rational enough to tell a whole lot. He's got dementia going on. And so I could call him up this hour, and we could talk. And I could call him up an hour later, and we'll have the same conversations. It'll be the same topics. It's going to be the same stuff. Um, And that's sad in one way. And I'm like, Lord, you know, I don't want to assume what's going on in his heart. He's a great man. He's 84, almost 85 years old, and he's lived far longer than he thought he ever would and far longer than any of the men in our family ever had lived. Um, But he's there. But I was able to tell him several years ago when Men Serve started up at our church that, hey, Dad, you know you always ask that question, why doesn't the church do something for the widows? I just want you to know that there is a church doing something for the widows And we probably wouldn't be doing that if it wasn't for you and other men like you that saw that and spoke up for that. And so I just want you to know that what we do, we're doing, we're doing in a sense, it honors you because it honors God and God's in you. And that's that's not a new age truth. That's a biblical truth. Christ in my dad, the hope of glory. That when this body falls apart, this mind is going to be gone. Christ is there and Christ is glorified even more. Um, I'm sharing that with you all. Um, there are other verses written down here, but the bottom line is this. We are to make disciples. We are to make disciples by loving God and lo- loving other people. That's what our church exists for. We do a good job of it in some ways. In other ways, we maybe don't do a great job of it, but we're trying. That's our purpose. If you have better ideas, share them with me. I am an open source ministry guy. We are only limited by my stupidity at times and lack of vision. 
We are not limited by the vision of God. We're not limited by resources. He owns it all. We are only limited if people don't speak up and share and say, hey, Eric, this is something I think could be really, really powerful. So we have a car care ministry because of what men have done. Men serve, mentoring ministry, small group ministries. There there are things that are happening because men have stood up and said, hey, what about this? And they've shared it and we've prayed about it. And they said, I'll help you do it. And we lock up arms and we go for it. Do you understand? It's not a hierarchy at this church. We all have the same purpose. And that is stand against injustice, speak truthfully, model love, advance mercy and compassion, invest our life in eternal things, help set people free from addictions and bondage to sin and death. Frederick Beekner says that if you want to really know your place and where God's calling you, he said that the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness or joy and the world's deep hunger meet. That if you see where there is a great need in the world and you are fired up about something that happens to be in that area, bring those two things together and it's win-win. It is kingdom victory because you will be unleashed with passion and excellence to do something that God intended you to do. So not only do we have his purpose in our life as well, but wait, there's more. No, um, but we have a transcendent victory. In other words, in Christ, we are completely secure. In Christ, I am secure and you are secure. We can rest assured that everything in life will be redeemed, that we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul says this two chapters later in Romans 8, 38 and 39. He says, for I am convinced or persuaded that not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So let me ask you this. What, what, think about what stresses you out. What do you have anxiety over? What robs your joy or your peace? What is it? I want you to take all of those things. And if you put those on a scale on one side and you just load that scale down. Whatever stresses you out, whatever you have anxiety over, whatever just ruins your peace or your joy. And you just fill the scale up. And if every one of us in this room filled the scale up and then over here, we put one simple thing. We put the gospel. We put that Jesus adopted you, that Jesus died and in him you are dead to sin. That he resurrected so that in him you are alive to God. That that will catapult all of the rest. That we would be able to agree with Paul that the peace that passes all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is there a circumstance that overwhelms Jesus? Is there? May we not be practical atheists in that matter because we will be. We'll say, there's nothing, nothing at all. And then we'll get back into our habitual, we'll, we'll worry about something. We won't have peace in an area. And I'm just saying, if this is true, if this is what Francis Schaeffer calls true truth, if it's true truth, we can rest assured on it. 
And so now let me, let me go to the gospel for a moment and look at what Paul says, and then we're going to tie this together. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. If I say, when was the gospel beneficial to you? The answer probably would be, well, I was dead in my sins. I didn't know who Jesus was. Someone shared the gospel with me. I prayed to receive Christ. I'm following him as my Lord, right? But let's look at these verses and what is the timeline that we see here? Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What are the time frames that we see here? Past, present, and future. Past, which you received. Aha, salvation, right? Present in which you stand. And future by which you are being transformed. In theological terms, it means that we're redeemed, justified, and sanctified by the gospel, by the good news. It's all one reality. It's all one truth. It is the gospel. Sometimes we fail to realize that there is power in little things over a long amount of time. So there's this proverb, and I don't know if I included it on your sheet or not. I can send this out later if I didn't. Watch your thoughts, they become words. Watch your words, they become actions. Watch your actions, they become habits. Watch your habits, they become character. Watch your character, they become your destiny. I know it seems a little, uh, you know, non-biblical and all of that, but God gives us a picture in the world of this. If I think of mighty rivers, I think of the Mississippi. I grew up in the Tennessee Valley area. The Mississippi River was so powerful. It's huge. I remember, I remember when Arnold Palmer drove a golf ball, tried to drive a golf ball across the river, the Mississippi River. It's huge. Okay, I mean... Do, Ships travel on it, super powerful, wouldn't want to try to dam it, right? And yet, you know, if you go up to Minnesota, four and a half bounds, you can cross the Mississippi River. I've jumped across the Mississippi River, four, just four strides, boom, 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 there, the mighty Mississippi that something great and something powerful can come from something very small if it's allowed to run its course over time. That it will build and build and build. And I just want to argue with you all for a moment just to say Romans 6.11 is what Paul believes is the headwaters of sanctification. What fuels our sanctification? It's that we daily meditate and we daily think about that we are dead to sin. I don't have to do this. I don't have to rage behind my wheel of my car when I'm feeling frustrated and angry. I don't have to turn on the computer and go look for a release on the computer. I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to God that we are supposed to drink from the fountain of the gospel of this six Eleven. So I want to give you a summer challenge. Thank you, Eric. We need a summer challenge. We need some homework. I believe that intentionality is one of the biggest attributes of a godly man. 
is intentionality. And the men that I know that I look at their life and I'm like, I wish I was more like them, have a level of intentionality going on in their life. They have made some decisions ahead of time about how they're going to handle circumstances in life, not in the nick of time. They've made it ahead of time about who they'll date, how they'll date, what type of job they would do, what would they would be willing to do if confronted with a work situation that was an ethical dilemma. I'll choose God. I'll choose God. God will provide another job if I lose my job over that. I am not compromising because I am free from sin. I'm alive to God. Those men have character and nobility that are lacking in our country, in leadership, in pro sports, and in pro politics, and even in pro religion. That there is compromise that happens because men and women do not trust this, the reality we just looked at. And so there are three realms. There's a sheet, a yellow sheet on your paper, uh, on your uh, table there. And there are, there are three categories. It says, I'm accepted. I am secure. And I am significant. Those line up with the three things that being alive to God. We have a new purpose. We have new life. We have a transcendent victory. Security, right? What I would love for you to do. Is it over, over this summer that you would look at your life and you would pray about your life and you would think about your life and then you would look at these verses, these truths, as Schaefer says, these true truths, more true than anything else in our culture, anything else in time, space, history, are these truths about who we are in Jesus Christ that you would choose some of these to meditate on daily. For some of you, it becomes your lock screen on your phone. For others, you're the note card guy, and it's on the dash of your car. It's on your mirror. It's on your computer monitor at work. Wherever it is, you put it there. You might even make a little business card and put it in your wallet, and every time you pull your wallet out, it's right there looking at you. You meditate on it. You think about it. You talk about it. You share it with a close friend, or you share it with a spouse. You share it with your kids if they're old enough to understand it. To say, hey, I'm wanting this to become so true in my heart this summer. This is what I'm asking God to do. But let me just say this, that if, if highlighting a verse and writing it on a card, that's usually not enough to change a life. I mean, it's, it's, I wish it was, but it's really not. So we need, we need a thing called faith. And when I say faith, I don't mean sort of the belief that most of us have, like, yes, I believe in Jesus, but I'm a practical atheist. I mean faith in a biblical sense of the word that will radically transform your life. And I love what Tim Keller says about faith. He says that faith is not primarily a function of how you feel. Faith is living out and believing what's, what truth is despite what you feel. So Hebrews eleven six 6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Well, there are times that I've been absolutely internally stressed out and scared, but I knew what God was calling me to do, and I had a choice. I'll put my faith in you, the most high God, or I'll cower and step away. And I praise God that the times of recent that needed to be stepped into, I've stepped into. And the mantra that I've been holding on to is step into the fear. Now, the fear of, oh my gosh, I don't want to have an affair. I'd ruin my marriage and my kids. And I, hey, godly fear can keep us from all sorts of wicked things. But I'm talking about fear that's just there. It's not about morality. It's something else. That we are to step into that and believe the truth in spite of what we feel. So in our life, victory is really more about a mindset that we have 
than anything we'll ever do. It's rooted and grounded in who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done. It's Christ who makes us dead to sin. It's Christ who makes us alive to God. And so this summer, my prayer is that we'll walk in that daily. We'll think about that daily. We'll cultivate that in our heart and mind. So there are about 10 questions at the bottom of the listening guide that I I want you all to take some time around your table. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Fellowship Center of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day.